Old Testament reading is from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 953. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king come to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow, bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. This is the word of the Lord. And the New Testament reading today is from Matthew 11, verses 16 through 19, and 25 to the end of the chapter. This is found on page 976, 976. This is Jesus speaking. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and and drinking and they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Sherman Street Church. Um, I invite you to pray with me before we uh, dive deeper into Zechariah together this morning. Let's pray. God, we ask uh, that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear you this morning. That we might be reminded of who you are in your goodness and your humility 
in your love and compassion and grace. And through these things, your power and your victory, which gives us hope. Word of God, speak and give us hope this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are in Zechariah chapter 9, which we heard read a couple minutes ago. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I have a small preaching kind of support feedback team that I've been doing a run-through with on Saturdays, uh, the days before I preach. And because I value such a, a diversity of opinions, that preaching team is made up of Chris Booth and Paul Booth currently. <laughs> Uh, just to get just to get like a lot of different, you know, vantage points. Uh, speaking of, I'm recruiting some more people. Uh, if any of you are interested in coming for an hour or so on a Saturday afternoon once a month, but anyway, uh, and Paul gave me permission to share this. You know, after we read the text yesterday, uh, he said, "What wasn't there a, a better text you could have chosen?" <laughs> Um, you know, Jen and I, most weeks, we'll, we'll look at the, what the lectionary has, and there's usually four texts, an Old Testament, a psalm, a, a gospel, and then another New Testament, usually an epistle or acts or revelation. But, um, but this text in Zechariah just jumped out at me this week. Uh, this, this contrast, this tension between this king who comes victorious and triumphant and his lowliness, his humility and his, his way of peace as the way of establishing his kingdom. And so the sermon's called The Lowly King and uh, we're going to look at how lowly King Jesus, whose victory comes through humility and love and peace, is the lowly king who still today calls us and calls the church and the world to engage the world in all of its, at times, violent forms through the same humility and love and peace. And so we're going to do that in, in three movements today. We're going to look at a lowly king, a lowly church, and a lowly God. Uh, so let's set up some of the context here uh, in this book of Zechariah. I, you know, Zechariah is one of the 12 minor prophets, um, the scroll of the minor prophets, which are the last 12 books of the Hebrew scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament. And uh, I, I, to be honest, needed a little refresher on Zechariah. So like any good scholar, I went and rewatched the Bible Project video, um, which are actually really, as you know, most of you, uh, really well done and... Um, and Zechariah, if you too need a refresher, uh, is a prophet who is written at the time of uh, God's people's return from exile. They are uh, coming back from 70 or so years of Babylonian captivity, 70 years of, of trauma after the unthinkable had happened and the temple has fallen and they have lost Jerusalem and the Babylonians had, 
had decimated and split them, and it's into this context that Zechariah brings this this oracle that we get in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Zechariah's book. And so this, this time of exile has ended, and God's people have started to return to the land, and there's some rejoicing in that, but really it's still a time of just of just starting to kind of get their balance yet again. There are people who had been decimated uh, politically, economically, uh, population-wise, and, and life is, is not good. Life is hard, and they're just returning to the rubble that was their lives a few generations ago and are trying to pick up the pieces in the wake of such horrific trauma. And it's in this context that Zechariah speaks this oracle of Zion's coming king. But it's not the kind of king you might expect. He says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious and lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I can't help but wonder how these words must have hit uh, the people of God in this, in this period of time and the season of life they found themselves in. I wonder if it almost struck them as pastorally insensitive to call them to rejoice and to celebrate this the coming of this triumphant but lowly king. What are they to make of this lowly king? What are we to make of this lowly king? And what about this lowly king is worth rejoicing greatly? Notice the contrast here. See, he says, he's speaking, Zechariah's speaking on behalf of Yahweh in this oracle, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious, and then immediately after, lowly and riding on a donkey. There's this this wonderful juxtaposition. Triumphant and victorious, to be sure, this is a king whose power is without challenge. This is a king who will proclaim victory over his enemies. And yet, lowly, and one who comes riding on a donkey. This this word lowly in the Hebrew can also be translated poor. Rejoice, your king comes poor, triumphant and victorious and poor. And it can also mean afflicted, Rejoice, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious and afflicted. And you see some of the resonance there with some of the other prophets, people like Isaiah, who talk about the Messiah as a suffering servant. Riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Hebrew here, it's riding on a donkey, that's the generic term. Then on a colt is a young 
male donkey, a, a beast of burden, one commentator says, whose job would be to, heavy, uh, to carry heavy loads out in the fields. This is not the king that they expected who comes on great white horse with sword drawn in power. And then to really bring the point home, this king not only comes on this beast of burden, but on the foal of a donkey. That's the female. The, the foal means baby of a mother donkey. Rejoice, your victorious, triumphant king comes on a baby donkey. Then Yahweh says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. Ephraim was the, the most uh, populous and powerful nation of the northern kingdom. Israel had been split into Israel and Judah before the Israel. And Ephraim represents the northern kingdom. Jerusalem, the capital of the south. Yahweh is saying, I will take away the weapons of war from this side and that side, and I will break the battle bow. And he, this Messiah, this good, lowly king, will proclaim peace to the nations. Isn't that good news? I can't think of what the application that might be for our dichotomies, the ways that we polarize ourselves as humans and set ourselves up against one another. In the CRC, you know, the Abide Project, I will take away their video cameras. <laughs> and the all one body, I will strip them of their lawyers. I don't, I don't know what the equivalent might be, but, but this vision of peace, of a universal rule of a good and humble king whose rule, Zechariah continues, will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus, of course, is this lowly king. And this prophetic oracle pointed you know, 520 or so, 550 years into the future, when Jesus makes his own triumphal entry. Matthew 21 and John 12 quote these verses in telling the story of who Jesus is. He is the good lowly king who comes, whose life is marked by lowly, humble movements guided by love and peace. In his incarnation, in his birth into the most humble of circumstances, in a life lived not in the halls of power among the movers and shakers, but among the most outcasts of those on the margins whose own kingly entrance into Jerusalem and that faithful week happens on a donkey. And then whose suffering and death over the powers uh, is marked by an overpowering of his enemies through not power 
and violence to match, but through surrender, even a surrender into death. So what does it mean for us as a people who follow the lowly king to live as a lowly church? Jesus, of course, is both uh, the model and the, the source of our faith. We are a people of the way. We are people whose own way and life is marked by a following in the footsteps of this lowly king. And so what, is it, what does it look like for us to live in a world of clashing powers, in a world so quick to violence? What does it mean for us to live in the same way of lowliness and humility, in the way of love and of peace. Uh, something we, we talk about often in our household, uh, particularly with, with uh, our son Oscar, who's nine now, is uh, a young boy soaking in all the time these, these images of what boyhood and eventually manhood is supposed to be. So much talk toxic masculinity wrapped up in that, but also for our daughters, for, for, for our family and our home. What, how does the life of Jesus redefine strength? And uh, despite so many examples in, in you know, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and DC and all these, these movies that we enjoy, how might we especially those of us as parents, teach our kids, you know what true strength is? True strength is not found in out-muscling the other, of having more guns or bombs than the other, of defending oneself by pinning the other to the wall, of responding to the threat of violence or death, through violence and killing. But no, true strength is found in self-restraint. So we find ourselves often you know, telling our kids that it takes a lot more strength to not punch your sister back when she punches you. This is true for us as, as adults too, right? It takes a lot more strength to not punch someone back on Facebook when they, so to speak, punch you. And to be sure, people who commit acts of violence need to be confronted. They need to be held accountable. That violence needs to be named. This isn't, the life of Jesus is not a life of passivity. It's a life of enter, entering into a violent world, entering into the fray, of confronting the powers that be, not sitting on our hands and just accepting the status quo. And so there's all sorts of appropriate ways of confronting violence in this world that are nonviolent that we see in the life prophetic witness of people like Martin Luther King and and Oscar Romero and so many others this isn't about sitting on our hands but it's about refusing to take up a sword to fight those who wield swords And I was thinking this week about what it might look like to read through the Gospels with this lens of wondering about uh, paying special attention to Jesus' self-restraint in story after story after story. 
To imagine in every situation, every story, when Jesus is, is attacked or persecuted or grieved by the evil of the world, to just think of how easy it would have been for Jesus to just snap his fingers and call in an army of angels. How, how furious he must have been when his cousin John the Baptist was beheaded. Might Jesus have been tempted to just call in the army to, to strike dead King Herod and those inflicting so much evil in this world. And to be sure, there is so much evil and violence in this world. To look specifically at Jesus on the cross as he's mocked by people saying, you saved others, why can't you save yourself? Call down angels. Let's see how powerful you are. When they mocked him and put the sign on the cross that said, here is the king of the Jews and placed on his head a crown of thorns. How tempted might he have been to speak a word and strike these tormentors down in their tracks. But Jesus shows us a deeper strength, the strength self-restraint, the power of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's, that's where the power lies in the great scheme of things. And so what does it look like for us to be a church who engages the violence around us with humility and peace? What might it look like for you in your day-to-day to to react not with violence but with peace? Uh, Jen and I had this little, just a couple minutes before the service, I had my bag and I was coming out of the office and she was coming coming out of our pastor study, she was coming out of the office, we kind of bumped into each other and I like I stepped on her toe and she's like Ugh! and she just like got down and grabbed her toe and is like Ugh! just took a couple seconds which I interpreted it as, as she didn't say anything but I interpret I read it as Tony you jerk <laughs> you just you know uh, which we, we use often in our phrases comes from the Therapist Terrence Real. The thing I made up about it is, right, it's to like be honest about your assumption without just saying, you said this or you meant this, right? The thing I made up about it is this like accusation of my guilt. Was, was that true or no? See, I made that up. See? Uh, and I'm tempted immediately to just like, why did you get in my way? Why did you put your foot right under where I was about to step? Why would you do that? Uh, but to just catch myself, right? These tiny moments, and, and there's a million opportunities each day to just to choose the way of peacemaking over escalation. And, and that doesn't mean we just, you know, say we're sorry when we don't mean we're sorry, right? Or admit guilt where there's no guilt, right? But it's, it's a posture in the spirit of our lowly king. So we talked about the lowly king, a lowly church, and lastly, I'll just end with this implications of all this for the, what it means to believe in a lowly 
God. I found myself uh, lately praying prayers of frustration. Uh, Asking God, why are you so slow to fix this messy situation here? Or why aren't you bringing about justice and victory for the righteous here? And to be sure, there's all sorts of signs of goodness and life and flourishing all around us, but there's also signs of death in situations where we pray and we pray and it does not look like the victory of a good, powerful, healing and reconciling God. And I find myself praying, God, where where are you in this? I find myself at times doubting if this God that we claim to be powerful and faithful and good really is real, really is present in these situations that so often are marked by suffering and death. And it's good for us to pray those prayers because those prayers are not a sign of the absence of faith. Those prayers are what Christian faith at times looks like. There's a reason our, our Psalter, the, the Psalms, give us words to express the, those prayers of doubt and to go somewhere with them. God welcomes us to storm God with our doubts and our cries of, God, where are you? And so if you find yourself in that place, I invite you to, to bring those to go for a walk or to journal or however you bring those to God, to ask for a meeting with your pastors or your elder and to just let loose. Because for me, even as I pray those things, this isn't always the case, but I find myself and found myself this week, even as I pray into those things, I'm reminded again of the nature of the way in which God moves in the world. I'm reminded of the cross, and I'm reminded that Jesus, as Paul tells us, is the image of the invisible God. That if you want to know what the heart of God looks like, you look at Jesus and this lowly king reflects something to us of a God whose own way in the world is not expressed through an overpowering of others, but through that slow and quiet 
way of love, way of wooing people into goodness, of opening eyes and changing hearts, that this is the way that God is and will transform the world. But it's a way that is slow and painful and sometimes means that our circumstances look a lot more like crucifixion than triumphant, the triumphant victory of a mighty military commander. I'm reminded, uh, just to close here, again, of, of Zechariah's, the context of Zechariah's prophecy. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. See your king comes, triumphant, victorious, lowly on a donkey. You know, it's interesting that this word see, a more accurate translation would actually be listen. Listen, your king comes triumphant. But really, they, they often translate it see because it's, it's something closer to pay attention. Listen and keep your eyes open and make notice of the lowly king. It's a call for eyes to see and ears to hear because it can so easily be missed. And these words at the end, return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Erica spoke so beautifully about that call. I will free you. As for you, moreover, because of the blood of my covenant, because of the love of God, Zechariah says, to this people whose lives were rubble and ruin, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Notice it's the future. It's not, I have freed them yet. I will free you prisoners from the waterless pit, a pit that brings to mind the the story of Joseph and Reuben, that he's thrown in the cistern, that he was able to survive because it did not have water in it. Right? He's naming the desperate situation of their story. I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Therefore, return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. He's calling them to to have a little distance from the story they find themselves in, in their lifetime, in their epoch of history, and to ground themselves in the larger story. To remember that our stories are always a story within a story. And that victory has come and will come And yet, until that day, we, by faith, pray for eyes to see and ears to hear and faith to believe. Let's pray. God, this uh, this work of faith 
is so hard. And Lord, we want signs and wonders and assurances of your victory. We want to believe that love wins. But Lord, so often our circumstances make it hard to believe that. And so, Lord, help us again this week to look to the lowly king whose own journey so many times looked like defeat. Help us, Lord, to have the faith to believe that resurrection has come and will come. And that resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. Lord, fix our eyes on you, Lord Jesus, the lowly King, as we follow in your footsteps. Make us, Lord, a people of love, of faith, of hope, and of love. In Jesus' name, all God's people pray.